Welcome to The Developmental, a podcast about the messy, beautiful ways grown-ups grow up. Here, we explore turning the science into the day-to-day practice of adult development in teams, homes, organizations, and life. Hello, friends, and welcome to a new episode of The Developmental. In this conversation, I unpack together with my wise and very knowledgeable guest, Dr. Cindy Scholes, the incredibly intricate and powerful role that emotions play in our lifelong growth. Dr. Cindy has dedicated her life to supporting people who want to make a difference in the world by guiding them off of the burnout path dictated by society and onto the purpose path assigned to them by their soul. Trained by Nobel Prize winners at UCSF, a prestigious medical school, Dr. Cindy is a neuroscientist who uses a little bit of magic to guide people to access their personal power and transform their future. She is the innovator and co-founder of the REST technique, with two R's, and was featured in the Wall Street Journal and USA Today for her 20 years of helping thousands break old emotional patterns to live full-hearted lives. She believes that when you optimize brain function, your authentic self will be freed and empowered to lead a purposeful life. I was very, very excited and stimulated to dive into this conversation with Cindy around the intersection of her work with adult development. And we came to some discoveries together, which we hope you'll find as inspiring and useful as we have. So I hope you enjoy this conversation and looking forward to learning your insights on the other side. Welcome to the Developmental Podcast, Cindy. I'm so happy to have you. And it's been a bit, a bit of, of a while in building and arriving yes. to this conversation. That's right. It's been a while since we talked before, and a lot has happened in the meantime. A lot has happened. In both of our worlds, probably. Yes. Yes. And in a way, it's, I was reflecting before we started the recording and kind of catching up with what's been happening in our worlds, how in the work we're doing, we're actually living it as well. And it's almost this constant invitation to put the lens on your own life and kind of walk your own talk and and live your own work. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And, and yes, and I was sharing with you and I'll just say that here is, is that some really dramatic things have happened in my world. I've had a death of a very dear friend and it's created a lot of place of grief and suffering and also a place of self-reflection and yeah. growth. And there's some, and so, yes, I'm having to pull out all the tools that I've learned yeah. to be able to process with some big changes happening. Yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of almost uh, forcing us to really keep this conversation real. <laughs> there's yes. no way we're going to sit just in theory throughout <laughs> with we maybe I'll just briefly share how we actually came together. We were we were brought together by a common friend of ours from the space of positive psychology, Kirsten May, who's gonna actually be a guest on the mm-hmm. podcast in one of the next episodes. 
Uh, and I love how we're building this web of curious minds and practitioners from different corners of the world and, and kind of finding these threads, these common threads of opportunity to learn from each other. So we had a catch up and we kind of discovered each other's work and we saw all of these connections, which I was super excited about and got me so curious to learn more about your work. And, and we did find this common thread of emotion and the value of emotion in humans' lives and, and most importantly, in the way we grow as human beings. So we yes. kind of name this conversation emotion as superpowers and we'll see where it, where it takes us. Absolutely. And so I'm excited because, yes, this is, I like to think of the work that I do in the world as helping people create emotional agility. And I think that that's being able to recognize the power of the emotions and then use them in a way to navigate the world, um, very yeah. to navigate a very complex world in a way that creates the positive impact or change that you're wanting to see. Yeah. Which in a, I think this is a perfect segue into what would have been my first question for you. I did read mm -hmm. your bio as we started this episode. So people are a bit familiar already with where you're coming from, but I feel I'd love, there's always a story behind that is always even more interesting than whatever can be captured in a bio. So I'd love to to learn how did you get to this intersection of research and practice because you are a researcher and you're also a practitioner and you really inhabit that liminal space. What's your story, Cindy? How how did you come to this this work? Well, it's really interesting because I was thinking about this the other day, actually. Like, how did I get here? And I usually talk about after having gotten my PhD in neuroscience, how I got to the working on emotional stuff. But I think it starts a little bit before that, because I remember as a kid, I would, I had a big trauma that happened when I was two. Didn't, I don't remember it. My father left when I was two. What I do know is, is that the, when I do remember stuff, I would break down and cry about things that most people wouldn't cry about, like somebody playing the guitar in a certain way. And I was always curious about that in myself. I would cry and I'd be really upset. And I would, and I was curious about what was it happening inside of me that would have me get so upset about that, which shouldn't be upsetting. Or I would have reactions. And so I started getting really curious about how people operate. First of all, how I operate, but like why I do the things I do, but also about other people. Because I also had this, because I think my father left, I had this sort of wanting to understand everybody else's intentions <laughs> and mm -hmm. how, what, what's going on inside their life so I can predict their behavior and what did I need to do and keep them from leaving or something like that. Turns out my father is, was a musician. He played the guitar. I kind of knew that. And so I was like, well, I think the fact that I get so upset and I cry about certain guitar music played in a certain way must have something to do with that, but it was just weird to me. And so, so I was kind of curious about it. I think that that curiosity, that sort of deep curiosity on how people work led me to neuroscience wow. in the first place. And, and when I was studying neuroscience, what I was really studying is how our brains get connected the way they get connected. I'm studying neuroplasticity. How do you develop 
how do the neurons connect with one another and how do you learn things like what's really going on in that biology i love biology because it was so like three-dimensional <laughs> i started out yeah. in college as a, like in a psychology major but that was like way too i don't know abstract for me but the biology i could i could imagine the physical nature of it really resonated with me and so i think that that's really where i landed in the research was looking at that neuroplasticity. But then I really found that what I was really interested in was real people and real lives and not little neurons on a plate, right? Honestly, that I was interested in that. But once I got my questions answered there, I was like, I didn't have the patience to keep doing that type of research. And so I was really more interested in researching real human interactions, like what's really going on inside of people's minds and why and and what's happening with the subconscious mind? And can you change that, right? Are we completely driven by the subconscious stuff that we've learned? Is, or can you actually make changes? And I think that that has driven the rest of my career, really, is learning what are the ways that you can access that subconscious mind and make changes there. And, yeah. and that subconscious mind just being anything that's not at the level of consciousness right now, those things that drive our behavior and that we're acting before we even know it, we don't know why we're doing that action. And so emotions play a big, big part of that, right? Yeah. Could Um, you talk a little bit more about that? How how that connection works? Yeah, I will. And I'll give you another story. Yes, please. I, I just, so I, learned how to control my emotions, like emotional regulation. So by the time I was in college, I didn't seem to have a whole lot of, I kept my emotions under control. But before that, I'd been somebody who was a little bit of my, my adopted father was a rager and I kind of learned and I was, you know, redheaded and I don't know, what do they say? Redheads are like explosive. (laughs) I don't know that that's true, but I did was pigeonholed in that way. But I learned how by the time I was in college to have a lot of control over my emotions until I had kids. And then what I noticed is in having kids is, is that I would get over the top, like something would break the camel's back and I would just lose it. And I wouldn't really... As a mom, like, I feel my heart is right? just starting to pump yes. only when you say it. Right. I remember one day I walked into my house after ha- seeing clients and being in therapy. Everybody's like calm and relaxed. And I've had a great day. And I walk into the house and I trip over the backpacks and the shoes. And I'm on my way to the kitchen to make dinner for the family. I'm hangry. They're hangry. And like the kitchen sink is full of dirty dishes. And I'm pouring the pasta water into the sink to get strain out the pasta. It splashes in my face and burns me. And I lost it. I threw the pasta in the sink. I screamed and I ran out the door. I'm like, I can't take it anymore. Like the movie. (laughs) And I was, it was not my proudest moment. I was so ashamed that I literally got in my car and I drove away because I was just like, I don't even know what came over me except that I was just hijacked by the stress that I felt like I couldn't handle. And a lot of it was that I couldn't handle it. Yeah. And having had that experience had me go, okay, I have to look more deeper into what kinds of things 
the the how are emotions getting triggered and how do they get so out of control? Because I realized, yeah. yeah, I'd had all this emotional regulation. Well, yeah, it was stuff and stuff underneath the yeah. rug and not really adjusting it. And I guess Brene Brown says it's chandeliering when you, all of a sudden it just explodes. It explodes, right? Every and parent so, out there listening to this, Cindy, will probably <laughs> find their own example of that scenario. I think this is such a profoundly human experience and also the shame that comes and the guilt that comes with it. I've never felt guilt to the intensity that I have in the last eight years since I've had my daughter. I didn't really know what guilt was. I think before that in hindsight. Right. And I think that when we get hijacked from those kinds of, from those emotions, it's like we get hijacked into an old pattern where our nervous system has perceived there is some threat out there. And then whatever patterns we have that help us, for me, it was obviously it was an avoidance response because I ran away. (laughs) But whatever patterns that are, that is, that's what's getting triggered. And sometimes we have the mental muscle to go, okay, I feel that coming on. I can like breathe through it or whatever. And sometimes we don't. And so what I was interested in is what can we do to reduce the to heal, so it sounds kind of weird, but it's to heal that. And what I mean by that is this, I recognize that there was a first time that that pattern happened, right? Almost everything mm-hmm. that we do is habitual. Yep. Not everything, but most things that we do are habitual. And anything that's habitual, there was a first time you learned it. Well, emotional patterns we learned when we were really little, before we even know that we're learning anything it's like it's learned in the subconscious mind it's not like we set out to learn it it's like the body starts learning it for us right i might throw an example here because that resonates very deeply my my i'm very lucky to have a husband who's who is very keen to work on himself and we kind of share that that focus together so we're really working on turning our bad moments or our moments of emotional dysregulation into moments of reflection, which the two can't happen at the same time. (laughs) But a really funny example of going to the source of something that has become memorable to me. And it's, I'm always reminded of it when, and when you said it now, it just came back to me was for the first, maybe five or six years of our relationship, we always got into a a conflictual, like heightened emotions moment when I shouted for him from a different room of the house like this very very small thing for me completely neutral it didn't mean anything other than I'm just too lazy to kind of come where you are and I'm just shouting your name and kind of telling you something from across a couple of rooms across and every time when I did that he would react like I had attacked him in some way so he would respond in a very irritated way and kind of and and for me, that meant, oh, so did I make a mistake? And I don't realize that I made a mistake. So it didn't feel fair. And I would become defensive. And then we would get into this squabble. And it occurred to me after a long, long time of doing this. So I, I noticed it over and over again. And there's a question here for me to to ask you whether the the what you just said about it's it started somewhere you, you, there's an indication it started somewhere when you see it playing out over and over again in the same way mm-hmm. it felt like yeah groundhog day every time i did this he reacted like that 
So it occurred to me one day to ask him, uh, when we were both calm, nothing had happened. I said, Do you know that this pattern we keep getting into? What What's going on for you in those moments? Why do you get so annoyed? And he, for the first time, he realized that he wasn't actually getting annoyed at me. And he said, you know what I realized? I've actually, I've got this memory from childhood and with a lot of difficult stuff that he navigated in his own childhood. But that particular behavior, when he heard his name being shouted, that always meant he had done something wrong and there was always punishment coming after that. So there was no way that would ever be a neutral thing in his upbringing. And we looked at each other and I remember that moment of, oh my God. I mean, we could have had this conversation like four years ago. It would have saved us a lot of frustration. But it didn't occur because in the moment he was convinced my behavior annoyed him and I was convinced his reaction was completely disproportionate and unfair. So neither of us stopped and went, this is a pattern, what's going on? So yes, I think you're just yes. bringing it's it exactly, to light. Yes, I love your example because that is so accurate. That's what happens and we get in these dynamics. So there was a first time that you reacted to something being mad at you too, like with the sense of, I don't know if it was the unfairness in your case. That is definitely a trigger for me. This is so unfair, right? Being sanctioned unfairly. Yes. 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 And the thing is, it's, it's what the reality is, is it's wonderful that your husband was able to reflect and go, oh yeah, I remember that this is the way it was when I was a kid, right? So often we don't have memories because this was actually set up before we, our conscious memories were yeah. laid down, right? And so, honestly, that's one of the the work that I do. I developed a technique that really laser focus gets to that first time because it's if we have a weed in a garden, you have to pull it out by the root in order really to get rid of it. If you just chop off the branches of it, you know how it kind of keeps growing back, uglier and bigger. <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. So finding that first time, that's where the seed got planted. That's the root. And then you can smooth it at the root. It's like pulling the weed out by the root. And then it doesn't keep coming back so dramatically. And so I think that's probably largely what your husband did in a way. He's, he found something that felt like this is the root. This is the reason. And in recognizing that that reason doesn't exist the same way now as it did then, it yep. smoothed that. Right. For him. Yeah, absolutely. And it definitely changed the dynamic. I still, I still do that sometimes, but not so much because I know it's a trigger for him and he definitely doesn't react in the same way. But I would love you to, if you want to share a bit more, Cindy, about the rest technique, because I imagine that's what you were uh, referring to. And, And how did your work in neuroscience translate into this? coaching and therapeutic technique, both, both in a sense, I, I would dare say at the same time. And yeah, how does that play out in your work? Yeah. So thank you for asking. So REST, it's an acronym. It stands for, it's REST with two R's. It stands for Rapid Reprogramming of Emotional Stress Technique. And I kind of came to that technique because I had been studying hypnotherapy and using hypnotherapy with clients, recognizing that's a great way to access the subconscious mind. But it was not getting, it was, it's actually not super effective at finding these original events where things get laid down. And when I was new from my neuroscience, that 
we learned things from a first time. And then once the neurons that wire together, they fire, like they fire together, then they wire together. You get this neuronal network because of the first thing. It's associative learning, right? Then something similar happens later. It reinforces that neural network and it grows because the similar thing is not the same. So you get, it starts to generalize. It starts to, and, and that's just sort of basic neuroscience. So that's what's going on. You probably got with your husband's reaction to you yelling across the room or your reaction to his upset about that. Like each of you had probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions of neurons activated all at the same time to create the feelings and, and reactions that you had related to that, right? So that was kind of built up of these experiences. So I kind of knew that from my neuro understanding neuroscience, and I had learned from some of the research studies that not ones that I did, but other people did that there seemed to be a window of time as you recall a memory to, that that memory automatically changes. Now, in fact, what we know is, is that anytime you recall a memory, it automatically changes. But even this ones that had this emotional stress thing, which they tend to be fairly embedded, those ones also can change when you recall them, if you recall them in a certain way, and there's a certain period of time that they can change. And so seeing that interesting result about how to sort of soothe traumas from the past, right? Help me got, and that was done in mice. The original studies were done in mice. And I'm like, well, this has got to be <laughs> applied to human beings too. Mm-hmm. And so I was learning other ways to access the subconscious. The, this is getting so technical, but the, the, when we have negative emotions, it activates our stress response. And so one way to, your husband was felt stressed about, was felt threatened by you calling from the other room, like he was going to be punished, right? So that's a great example. And, and so there's ways you can check the stress response of somebody. So, so I, I realized that you can use that stress response to find the root of these emotional patterns. And then knowing that that memory is now opened up, you can change that memory by recognizing, well, you're not the same person as you were when that yeah. memory was the same situation isn't happening. And so I was just really putting together different techniques and different pieces, understanding that this is how the neuroscience works. This is how the brain is working. And so this is, and if we can apply that into, let's just create another way of addressing what's going on emotionally. And so that's how rest got created. And so that's what rest is, is it's like looking at those specific things. And the great thing is, and like for you, for example, and we probably should have scheduled this. Sorry, we didn't, but I'll offer a session. We could try a session on just this feeling of unfairness, right? Testing it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that's going to be, yeah, this is unfair and you need to do something about it. And sometimes that feeling of unfairness is going to occur and it's just a throwback to the past. And how do you now as an adult? Because the emotions are the same. How do you sort that out? Yeah. How do you well, tell the difference between what is appropriate and what is actually yes. reacting to something that's not from the present, but from the past? Exactly. And so when you've done rest on it, we smooth the past. And then it's really easy yeah. to figure out kind of what's appropriate for about right now and what's kind of just being re-triggered from a past thing. Because the thing that's being re-triggered from the past thing, one, you have awareness on it. And two, it's not as intense anymore because yeah. it's been soothed from the past. It's been healed there. And so it's not 
it's not calling you into action anymore. And yep. so you have this awareness come up and then it's easier to discern, is that something I need to actually be paying attention to or reacting to? Mm-hmm. Is there, is, does this awareness that I have, because the emotions are like pain, right? So it gives you an awareness. And so, so the question is, is there really a hot stove you need to move your hand away from? Yeah. Yeah. Or, or is or it just, just the illusion uh, of a hot stove? The illusion the of it, or of you've it. already removed the your hand it. from the hot stove, but it still burns, right? Yeah. You don't have to do anything after you've already removed your hand. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I love, I love your description of how that process works. And it just opens up so many beautiful links for me with vertical development and adult development research. And and in particular with the research of Valerie Livesey, who looks at a, a phenomenon we call in the field fallback, which essentially means all of these moments when you almost regress into a less mature version of yourself, like your moment at the kitchen sink my moment and my dynamic with my husband around this calling out from one part of the house to another. It's almost like these moments when we become small, literally almost, not just figuratively. And and how much growth can actually occur, developmental growth from this awareness around what was it that triggered us in that moment and what is the pattern that's actually playing out and and now you bring in this idea of what's that weed from the past that maybe needs pulling out and then in doing all of that we're able to look at something that before we were looking through a pattern a mindset a set of mindsets and then in doing that actually what unfolds is vertical growth because at the core, adult development is a continuous process of looking at lenses, psychological lenses that before mm-hmm. you were looking through. So I love, I just love the convergence. And we were yes. talking before I had known, I wasn't aware of your work and you were not necessarily aware of the adult development work. But then when we started talking about it, we both went, oh, there's so much connection actually. And, and they can inform each other in beautiful ways. Yes. I love that. And one of the things I love about what you said is like this thing that we have lenses, of course. And when we we're we're typically looking through them, we don't see the lens. When you're looking through it, you don't see the lens. And it's only when something happens and you go, wait a minute, this is not what I intended. This is not what I meant to do or whatever, right? And you like go, let me work it. What is that lens that I was just looking from, right? What is that lens? And that is what allows that lens to dissolve away is looking at it and, and breaking it down and, and just, and, 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 and that lens is almost always, well, if it's something that's really worth getting rid of, I think it often comes with sort of the negative emotional content that says, look at, if the lens is, like if there's negative emotional content, then there's a lens that's worth looking at to see, is this really the direction? that I want to go. Right. And I don't, and when you and I had this conversation earlier, I don't know that every negative emotion means that there's a lens that you have to break down and get rid of. But I do think that, that often that's the case. And so when there is a negative emotion, it definitely calls your attention. There's something for me to look at here. It might not be getting rid of the lens, but there's something that I need to be looking at here. Yeah, that that really resonates. And we were touching before we started the recording and also in our previous conversation when we first caught up on 
how your research in neuroscience kind of intersects with some of the research I did in my through my own PhD, where the, the surprising finding, although I didn't look for it, was the role of emotions in vertical development. And I think you just articulated the core thing that I found was that whenever we feel these negative emotions, when we're out of our comfort zone, if we take them as cues for curiosity, and sometimes the action that follows that curiosity can be you need to go to therapy or engage in a process to discover where this is coming from. And other times it can be just you're working your way through grief and you just have to mm -hmm. sit with it and wait it out. But just the, the core idea was that we don't grow unless we make room and allow and hold within ourselves the pain of these emotions. And then I, I also wonder if, oh, sorry, I was going to just last thought well, I was having is whether it, once we do that for ourselves, whether to do that in relation, maybe you in relation to your children after that moment of explosion in the kitchen or I in relation to my husband, like this dialogue around, this is what I'm feeling. This is what you're feeling. What does this mean? The amazing perspectives and shifts of awareness this can actually open up, but there's no way to get to the discussion or on what this means unless we allow ourselves to feel whatever it is we're feeling. I think that's absolutely right, and I love that. And I work with clients around their emotions all the time. And one of the I have four questions that I encourage them to ask, kind of in reflection, if they've had a lot of negative emotions coming up, and it could be done at the time too, but. But the first question is, what is the emotion? I think it's important for people to be able to label the emotion. And I give them, a, I love Esther and Jerry Hicks' work, Abraham, the teachings of Abraham, and they have a wonderful emotional guidance scale. And so I usually give my clients that emotional guidance scale, but it ranks emotions on the least empowering at the bottom of the scale and the most empowering at the top. And we often think of negative, positive emotions, but it's really more about how much power it actually has in the world, right? So, but anyway, so I have clients one label it. So that's the first question. What is it? The next question is whose is it? So I think so often we don't consider, and I think that sometimes we're feeling an emotion that actually somebody else owns. It belongs to them and we're in empathy and we take it on ourselves. And then we start looking at like, why am I feeling this way? When really you aren't feeling that way. Your very close intimate partner is feeling that way and you're starting to just have empathy for them. When it's somebody else's emotions, then the question you asked, your husband is perfect. What's going on for you? Yeah. And I think you said something like that. And, and, it's, and it's definitely helpful, especially if there's anger, one of the emotions in anger to do that outside of the context of the emotion occurring because it won't work if you try to do it when the anger is actually there bubbling, right? But I think that if you recognize that maybe this emotion doesn't belong to you, then honestly, that means that you've got to let the other person own it. And one way to let them own it is for you to ask about it. So that it comes into their awareness of having that emotion because not everybody recognizes that sometimes they react out of their emotions without really processing that the emotion's even there, right? But, but so that's the second question is whose is it? And the third question I think is also really relevant and that's when is it? And this one gets to like, this, could this be something that happens frequently, it's a pattern and it's really about the past and not about what's happening right now. 
Or yeah. alternatively, another one is, could this be about some future I'm predicting that hasn't actually happened yet? And so I think that that question of when is it is a question that really helps you reflect on what is this emotion really telling me? Because if it's from the past and that past isn't happening now, then yes, rest is a great tool to get to the root, clear it out. You don't need to keep having this happening over and over again. It's about the future. That's usually about your thoughts about the future. And then there's this processing like, well, am I, you know, fearing this anger or worry about a future that hasn't happened? What is the probability of that future happening? And, and is there something I can do to mitigate that negative future to adjust here in the present moment so that I have a more positive outcome, right? And so it's, I think that's a really useful question to ask as well. And then yeah. the fourth question, because there's four questions. The fourth question is, what is the emotion telling you? And I don't think that that question is relevant until you've answered the other three. I just love, I, I absolutely love, I'm going to take this on. These are, I think, fabulous, fabulous questions. What, what, yeah, the notice happened when you ask these questions. What happens for people? Well, I think that it's, it's something that, first of all, very often we'll notice that people will notice that when they first started asking these questions, oh my gosh, I have empathy for this person that I didn't even know. So that's very common because I just think it's just the mindset that people haven't thought of. So I think just in asking these questions, it sometimes just illuminates things right away. Um, and, and also I think people don't think about, well, what? cause me emotion usually we are going oh it's the circumstances like she made me mad your husband was said yeah <laughs> alice irritated me can you <laughs> stop that. shouting from the over but it isn't that you were shouting that was the problem it was something from the past that was the problem so he was able to reflect on that when you asked him Whereas the point is in the middle of it, it's really difficult to reflect. These questions are not really very useful in the middle of emotion. Don't ask it in the middle of an argument. This is a process you can do later. And I actually think I apply these questions to myself when I'm having stuff going on. I'm like, ask myself these questions to help, especially if the emotion doesn't go away or it comes back or whatever, right? Like I ask myself these questions so that my intention is that that becomes very automatic. So I have yeah. the emotion come up and I can sort through these questions quickly and then know how I'm, and that's what I consider to be emotional agility, know what to do with that emotion and more in the moment. Yeah. Right? And so I tend not to get as triggered by anger anymore. I still do sometimes though. There will be things that will push me, right? And then I reflect back on that. Okay, well, what's going on? It sounds like a very powerful, very effective emotional hygiene process that you yes. can either support someone through or do it for yourself. And, and it, it brings yes. up a lot of questions and reflections, but two, two come to mind that I think are, are relevant for the audience listening to the developmental, many of whom are coaches. So there, something that was brought up for me when you asked, whose is it? was the, this challenge we often face as coaches in mentoring or supervision, where we actually realize we're taking on a lot of the client's stuff without even realizing it. And then almost getting into patterns in the, in the 
coaching conversation that are not productive patterns that stem out of us feeling feelings which are not ours. And it, when I work with coaches, I often invite them to get this meta perspective on what is actually going on right now in this coaching conversation and kind of looking at your feelings. And I've actually not asked this specific question, but I think it would be an amazingly powerful question to ask. Whose emotions are you feeling right now? So I just, it's less of a question, more of a, almost like a, oh, a light bulb for me as a coach that I just want to share. And maybe it's relevant for other coaches. And I know you train coaches and you mentor coach, coaches in mm -hmm. turn. This, this kind of awareness around how do we take on when we're in the helping professions, the emotions yes. of our clients, anything that this sparks for you, I'll, I'll well, share my I second just... point after, but I, yeah. Well, I, I just want to just say you're right on track. I think that it is a really important thing for people in the helping professions to ask themselves, because I think it's the people in the helping profession that are the most empathetic and most likely to take on other people's emotions. And just, it's really enough to bring awareness to it and recognize that if you are taking on someone else's emotion and owning it, it it's a disservice to them because it means they don't get to own it. And your job as a coach is to let them own their own emotions. And so that's a really important distinction to be able to know. Are you owning their emotions for them? Or are you letting them own them? Because if you don't let them own them, then they're not going to resolve for them. They won't yeah. be able to process them the way that they need to be able to process those emotions. So when you say own in this context, Cindy, you don't mean own as in being aware of what you're doing. You mean own as in unconsciously take them on as if they are yours, yes. right? Yes. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The second and related question that comes for me from those four core questions you asked is around the first one, labeling the emotion. I often hear, because out of, out of my discovery around this, uh, emotional space, the contrasting emotional space, I developed a little practice that people can do in feeling their feelings in their body, a somatically based practice, and then labeling is part of that. But what I noticed as I facilitate this exercise with people or teach coaches how to facilitate it is the question comes up, how do we support the people who are not able to label? So if they don't have the language, there are maps, like the one you mentioned, and I will put a link uh, in the show notes or Brene Brown's maps around emotions mm -hmm. that I think can be very, or the emotional wheel to give people language. But there's yes. something even more subtle than that that often happens is where people are not able to make the link between what they are actually feeling in their body or actually feeling the feeling and then being able to name the feeling. And I was curious if you've got any insights or perspectives around that that could be helpful for all those of us who facilitate these spaces for people, or maybe we're facing this problem ourselves. I don't know what I'm feeling. I, I really don't know what I'm feeling. How, how do you teach yourself to discern what you're feeling? Yeah, I, that's actually a really interesting question. And I don't know the answer to that because I read these, those lists of emotions and I'm like, I know exactly what that feels like. And I know exactly what that feels like. And so from my sense, I just have this intuitive way and maybe because I've been paying attention to emotions and my own and, and frankly, everybody else's and owning everybody else's when I was a kid way too much. So, so, and, and I also have a sense of sort of a little bit of where that is in my body. So it's an interesting question. I think it's a really important question. And the only thing I have to add to it is, is that 
I know there's been some research that was done relatively recently, and I think Chris, our mutual friend, actually turned me on to this, where somebody has looked at the physical responses in the body when people are having emotions and that they can see energy patterns within the body that relate to different emotions. For example, the emotion of anger, there's a lot of concentrated, I think it's actually heat energy that's occurring in the sort of central core area (laughs) and not so much in the limbs or something. I can't remember exactly what it is, but anger is very different from sadness, which is different looking than depression. And, And they each have their own sort of physical signature and 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 wish I remembered to give you the reference on that we'll have to give it to you for show notes if you don't already have it but yes please but that they she looked at the researcher had looked at a lot of different people and and saw that this was very common like these were the common patterns and this was cross-cultural so it wasn't just in one culture it was cross-cultural so I found it to be really interesting yeah. work that the emotions do have physical manifestations that are consistent from between people and between within different cultures between cultures. Mm. So presumably, if we if we take that as a hypothesis, then this could potentially mean that that paying attention to our body in moments of anger, let's say over time, can actually teach us what the somatic signature of anger is is in our body. And this actually triggered a memory for me because when my daughter was maybe three, I noticed that when she felt guilty, she immediately became very angry. And I had this inkling that those two were going together because she couldn't just tolerate the guilt of having done something wrong. And then she would just blow up if I told her that she, she'd done right. something wrong. And it occurred to me just instinctively at one point to tell her, I wonder if you're actually angry right now. I mean, I can see you're angry, but I wonder if you're actually also feeling guilty for having made a mistake. And it's absolutely normal to feel a mistake and it's absolutely normal to feel guilty. All of us feel it. But what are you feeling? And I distinctly remember she said, oh, mom. It feels like a pain in my stomach and I can't stand it. But she was able to, for the first time, articulate what the signature of guilt was in her body. And we've had many, many conversations. I'm super lucky to have a a kid who's very sensitive emotionally and she can talk about her emotions. But I just, it was just like this moment for me. Oh my God. Oh, oh, maybe if I ask the question, then actually, so this kind of brought it back. So maybe it's something as adults that we can relearn or learn if we've never learned to do it, right? I think mm. so, yeah. And I think the somatic work that it sounds like you do with your clients too can really, really help, right? Like just really be paying attention to what is the physical experience and how does that physical experience relate to the emotional experience? And and one of the things I found with the rest technique is is that you go back to these original events when, you know, these neurons got wired together for the first time. You go back to that root. It's not just one emotion. It actually can be incredibly complex. And, and we hit, like you talked about your daughter having the guilt. And I would wonder, is it shame? Because that's often what comes with making mistakes too. But that those two emotions coming together, like right at the same time. And that's what I find with rest is, is that sometimes we'll get Typically, it's around five, seven, but as many as 10, 20, sometimes 30. It's unusual to have that many, but 
there's there sometimes can be a lot of complexity and yeah. subtlety in the emotions that are showing up for the child. And the child doesn't have the capacity to label them, but the adult subconscious mind does because the adult is much more, we've been exposed to all of these words. And so there's some context that all these words come up. But so the stress response now can can kill back and look and say, oh yeah, that's the emotion that was there. That's the emotion that was there, right? And so part of how rest works is to to really identify that complexity and soothe each of those emotions. Mm -hmm. Because it's those emotions taken together that is where the, what makes it its unique pattern of reaction. Yeah. Yeah. And and when you say soothe, Cindy, what, what does that look or feel like for people? What's the experience of having that emotion soothed? So it's actually so interesting because we often think about, oh, we have to go back into, if we've had some kind of trauma, we have to go back and feel the emotion of the trauma. It's actually much simpler and less invasive than that. It's actually enough to have the stress response kind of go back. You don't even necessarily, we're, we're following the stress response with the, with the measure that sometimes the client feels and sometimes they don't, but it's subtle. It's not like a, having to relive anything. And then I have a list of emotions and I check this, I read them and check the stress response for the client. And so the ones that are, were present indicate a stress response, right? And so it's enough for them to just imagine the scenario, imagining, feeling the emotions. And then I actually have them soothe acupressure points to soothe the energies and I often will have them relax as well, recognizing yeah. that, wait a minute, you're right here in this seat, everything is safe and, and you aren't that child. So, so there's never a reliving experience. There's always a reflecting experience, but with a lot of honoring of the experience that the child had with the emotions that were there that maybe never really were ever addressed or processed or recognized before. Yeah, and so I don't know if that answers your question about no, it absolutely it absolutely does because you're if I get this right, you're actually working with the body still. You're you're working with Mm -hmm. the reflection on the memory, but you're working with the body and and with almost changing the physical stress response into a different kind of. It may be activating that parasympathetic nervous system in that moment instead of that sympathetic branch. And and it yes yeah it just blows my mind because the 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 process that I found was that when people brought curiosity on top of anxiety for example that I didn't call it soothing I called it that created a contrasting emotion space but I think we're actually talking about the exact same thing because yes we are seemed that it their body relaxed the anxiety didn't go away completely it was still there but it was manageable in a way where they could still reflect still challenge their assumptions so, so they could activate their their higher cognitive functions while still feeling their feelings instead of being completely overwhelmed by their feelings so there yes. seems to be right this this need to create enough space to hold our feelings where we're not flooded by them so then we can absolutely see a perspective right exactly and that's that's exactly right it's like holding sort of the 
parasympathetic, starting kind of from a parasympathetic state is usually where we kind of start so that you are relaxed. And then we bring, as you said, curiosity to it. What could this be? It's really interesting because I, one of my clients said, oh yeah, you're the emotion, you're the human condition detective. Well, what is a detective? Detective is curious. That's really what I bring into the session. And then the client joins me in this curiosity, like what's going on, right? And what could it be? And and it and sometimes it's a little surprising. So it's kind of fun to lay in that space of curiosity, staying in that parasympathetic, but recognizing that the past event, the child was in a sympathetic response. Yes. And then bringing a sense of compassion and understanding to that sympathetic response and the emotions that were involved in that sympathetic, like act, very activated, threatened feeling response and, and bringing a level of compassion. And so it is a soothing that comes from curiosity and then compassion and empathy yeah, for the child. Yeah. And bringing those two things together. Exactly. The sympathetic memory really with the parasympathetic experience of, of calm, empathy, yeah. and love, really. And forgiveness. We we bring forgiveness into it, too, because very often the child has felt since the time that's first thing happened that they were wrong and bad for their emotional reaction. And so to have this adult perspective come in and say, no, I love you. You're perfect. And it's it's okay. I'm sorry for your suffering. And there is, there's no real forgiveness needed, but sometimes the child can figure it anyway. I feel so inspired by all of this. It's my heart is open. My brain is buzzing. I feel like a kid in the candy store. And, and also <laughs> I feel like a hundred questions popping up from this because it's just fascinating to see the, the connection and how these mechanisms unfold. And I, I, I do want to ask a very curious and perhaps a bit nerdy question. I can see how compassion is soothing. And I can also see how you need the space to be held gently by someone you trust, like a coach who's trained in rest or like a therapist, perhaps in a therapeutic context. But so you can access that compassion, because I think as a separate observation that many people have trouble accessing compassion and love for themselves. That's a very hard yes, yes, ask yes. for a lot of people. But I'm really intrigued or, and I am really intrigued by why is curiosity so soothing? So I found that, you found that, I mean, we're seeing this common thread. Why do you think from a neuroscientific perspective, and it might be a bit of an invitation to speculate here, but why do you think curiosity, this epistemic emotion, uh, and I was intrigued when I found that it is called an epistemic emotion, because this means it's somehow accessing our, both our cognitive and emotional kind of aspects, right? When we tap into curiosity, it's not just a feeling, it's also cognition is involved. And I wonder if there's something about that that makes it soothing. But yeah, just curious, why do you think that is so powerful? Well, I mean, I think this is interesting. And and I'll tell you, I love this question because, and I can nerd aisle on this all day, but this reminds me of the question you had addressed me earlier. And I think, again, it was before we got on and, and you had talked about how what you found, and I, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but what you found is, is that when people are feeling negative emotions, often that is a sign that they're learning and growing. And I think that I agree with that. And I would distill that down into when people are feeling overwhelmed and frustrated, irritated, 
those are usually signs of learning and growth because that's what the neurochemistry is doing. It's just, it's when we come up against something that's at the edge of our learning, right, we, we start feeling frustrated because there's all this neurotransmitters happening, a lot of acetylcholine, all this stuff, and then there's dopamine. That's, we want to get the resolution of this. Like, we want to be good at it, right? So there's, so all of those emotions come up. I think curiosity is also evolutionarily an emotion that drives our learning. I think yes. curiosity drives us into play. And what is play if it's not learning? I mean, yeah. that's the reason why it's play, right? Pleasurable learning. It is, it is the most pleasurable of the learning, right? Yeah. But even in that pleasurable learning, sometimes we get frustrated and overwhelmed. But if we can switch back into something like curiosity, it releases like a little bit of that blockage because when we get into the heightened sympathetic response, which when you really get, I think frustration can lead into overwhelm. And then you get this heightened sympathetic response. It actually don't have very good access to your working memory and a heightened, really heightened sympathetic response. You have to have some sympathetic response for you to be excited and interested and curious, right? But if it goes too far and it goes all the way into an overwhelm, then the sympathetic response is too much. And then you don't have access to this, this working memory so much. And then the learning process, it sort of starts to stall out. So I think the curiosity backs you away from that super heightened sympathetic response back into an excited response that allows for a continuation of learning, but doesn't shut it down. Yeah. So it stretches you yes. enough, but doesn't break you. Yes, exactly right. Exactly right. And, and curiosity also, I think, is great because when you take a perspective of curiosity, it's, you aren't looking at, oh, this is going to break me. Like you just said, like, when you move into great discomfort, it, you start feeling like, oh, my God, I'm going to break. I can't handle it, right? That's when that heightened sympathetic response starts to trigger threat, 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 right? There's no longer safety here. But when you can bring curiosity, it brings you back into this place of safety because yeah. there's not so much threat in curiosity. Yeah, you can't feel completely overwhelmed by threat and be curious at the same time. Those two are incompatible, are they? That's right. Yeah, yeah. I think that's right. That's exactly right. That's kind of my thoughts on it. And, yeah, I, and I, I've been thinking a lot about play and creativity. And I, and I know when you're in super heightened sympathetic response, you don't have access to play or creativity. And I also know that play is really designed for learning. We learn the best when we're playing. It's not the only place we learn, but we definitely learn a lot in play and having that perspective. And, and so, I don't know, that's a lot of the things that brings up in yeah. me. And I, I love feel it. like I, I just... want to nerd out a lot on that. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think this, this could open up a very, very deep rabbit hole. But I would, I would love to jump into it, but maybe not today. But I do think I, I love the connection you made between curiosity and play, which I hadn't made before, that almost bringing in curiosity in our moments of distress or, or deep discomfort, it's actually an invitation to turn that into play or to infuse play in that moment and activate our learning capacities in a whole different way, which yeah. is such a powerful insight 
for me and hopefully it'll spark reflection for people listening to our conversation. Oh, Cindy, we've gone places. <laughs> I, I know. I know it's been fun. <laughs> <laughs> we've covered so much ground. And I, I was telling you before we started that it's always my intention to leave people with, to really bring to life human development through these episodes, to, to, to keep the rigor and get people nerding out on the research, but really also invite them into the practice. How do you bring this stuff into your life? Because just being aware of research concepts is interesting, but really doesn't make any difference if you don't embody it in any way. So yeah. I always invite my guests to kind of offer something from their wisdom that can be a practice. And you've already gifted us the four questions, which all, they give me so much food for thought. I was wondering if there's anything else that you've learned yeah. as a coach that maybe you want to impart. Um, yeah. So the, so the only other thing I can think of, or the thing that I think is honestly backing up from the four questions thing is just that it is a gift of awareness, right? And so one of the things that I know I do is I am always trying to exercise my muscle of self-command, which means my ability to focus where my attention is, which means my ability to be present in the moment, like right now, right? Because you can't ask those four questions in the moment, if you aren't aware of the physical sensations that occur in your body the, or, or any of that, right? So the more we can be present in the moment rather than triggered out into the path by this, that, or the other, that is where we have the most power in our minds. And so I actually have recently rediscovered in some ways positive intelligence by Shirzad Shamin. And I've gone through his program. He's got a coaching program program and I've gone through that and he has a wonderful app as well yes he has a wonderful app that lets you do a mental fitness exercises on a daily basis and I am absolutely in love with these practices it takes mindfulness practice to a whole new level that I think is super practical and super accessible and and so I'm in love with it because it brings helps me exercise my own muscle of self-command and come into the ability to ask those four questions and be able to resolve it and have that emotional resilience. So that's something I think is accessible to anyone. I mean, yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's. Well, it was super valuable. Absolutely included in the show notes. And and also I just want to acknowledge and appreciate the invitation you're extending to practice or to treat all of this as as practice and as a muscle you can build because it's not really enough to be aware of, not even be aware of your feelings and all of that if you don't practice that capacity to catch yourself, to self-regulate, to bring yourself back when you're yes. where you're falling back, then it's just yeah lost a, a lost opportunity or a missed opportunity. And absolutely. Uh, I think the, the last question as we're wrapping up this conversation that comes for me, Cindy, is I know you put a lot of heart and passion into your work and you've dedicated your your life, your career to this work. What's what's at the core? We started our conversation before we turned on the recording, touching on on purpose and mission and what's important to us. What are you hoping if if more people strengthen this muscle, if we see more awareness and more self-regulation. What's what's the the driver for you in in doing you know, I, this work? Yeah. Well, first of all, it feels like such a deep calling, but I feel like all of us 
have a contribution that we want to make on the planet. Sometimes we're very disconnected from it. Sometimes where it feels like it's right there. And I, I feel like doing all of this work, and I, I like to think of it being an artist of your own mind, like creating a mental masterpiece of your mind. Like you have these, we have these tools available, right? But I think it lets each person be more of their authentic self and to be able to create their lives from that place of, of dreams and inspiration and contribution. And, and these are the tools. These are like the artist tools that let you paint your life using your, be able to sharpen, create this magical tool of your mind so that you can create your life as a masterpiece. And that kind of, that really drives me because to be able to have people recognize that, I feel like if you can heal the wars within yourself, then you can heal the wars in your relationship. And I just think we would have a lot more peace on our planet if people got to be that authentic, heartfelt, soulful self that they really are underneath all of the clutter yeah. that's been added. Be an artist of your but life. Treat it like a masterpiece. Yeah. So beautiful. Uh, I want to live in the world you're working towards, Cindy. Yes. Well, I, I do too. And I think, that, <laughs> I think I'll tell you, probably most of the people listening to this are also in their own way, creating this world. And I just want to just say thank you for the work you're doing in creating this world. And then all the people listening, because I really do think that it's those small pockets around the world that, that spread and create ripples where this is, this is how we're going to do it. Like it's going to happen. That world is being created right now. Yes. I, I think that is, that is a thought and an intention at the same time. And, and thank you for being in this web of mutual learning with me. Mm -hmm. I'm so, so grateful to have discovered your work and I'm sure people will want to learn more. So there will be resources in the podcast notes around rest and diving deeper into that. And I'm also already thinking, and I'll throw this out after we finish the, the recording, how else, what else might we create or weave together that can be useful and valuable. So deep, deep gratitude for your time and for your wisdom, Cindy. I've learned so much today. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Lots of learning for me from this episode. So many things that touched me deeply. Cindy's authenticity and her generosity in sharing the messiness of the work that she does on and with herself and the way she applies this work into her own life. And the four questions she offered us, I am taking with me. The first question, what emotion is it? An invitation to feel our feelings, feel them in our body, and if at all possible, to label the feeling. The second question is, whose is it? Who does this emotion belong to? And that's the invitation for us to notice those moments when we are simply unconsciously taking on other people's emotions and feeling them as if they were our own. Then the third question Cindy suggested is, when is it? That's 
a nudge towards presence, towards noticing whether this emotion is rooted in the past and we're just playing out an old pattern, or maybe it's rooted in thoughts and worries about the future versus what is actually here and now in front of us. And finally, the fourth question, what is this emotion telling you? Is there some learning here, some growth opportunity, some insight that opens up from the discomfort of feeling this feeling? I take the gift of these four questions as a precious offering to use for myself and into my work. And also, I'm taking Cindy's reflections on curiosity as an antidote to anxiety and overwhelm and gateway towards play and learning and this precious link between curiosity and learning, which was a light bulb moment for me in the conversation. These are my few big insights. There are others I'm sure that you will have picked on and that will be relevant for your own lives and your own moment. I would love you to share your thoughts in the comment section. And don't forget to check out the resources Cindy shared with us, which you'll find in the podcast notes. That's it for today, my friends. Until next time, stay awake, stay curious, conscious, and wise.